Welcome to the Millennial Way. Real millennials, real success. This is how they did it. Tailoring the next generation of leaders. I'm proud to be your host, Chase Coleman. Yo, what is up? What is going on? I'm your host, Chase Coleman, and what a lovely winning Wednesday it is. We have made it to the end of season six, and this episode is the best of season six. Guys, if I was being honest with you, six seasons, I'm just shocked. I'm really shocked. I mean, I never would have thought that we would have made it through six seasons, going into season seven, but here we are. I'm having a great time, and I hope you guys are having a great time with me. This season was a little different, so it was just like 2020. We heard from some really great guests. We heard from Andrew Agnone on consulting, and particularly on consulting travel, which we'll hear in this episode. We talked to Shinjini Das, who is an amazing, awesome, awesome leader who coined the term go-getters, and she is talking all about her go-getters and how to become a go-getter. We talked to my man, Chris Doring, on starting your law degree, on starting your law career and what it's like getting your law degree and then actually getting started within a, a firm, whether it's big or small. We heard from our serial entrepreneur, Simone McGee, on digital accelerator programs and how they can really truly help entrepreneurs continue to move forward. We took a quick wine break with my man Tyler Hayes, where he talked all about wine, the wine industry, and how wine is actually made. And then we also heard from some amazing leaders on how to progress racial change throughout many different places, whether it be in business, whether it be in sport, or whether it just be in your every single day life. So y'all, I'm not going to rant too much today because this is one jam-packed episode, so let's get into it. You know, if you're young and single, you don't have any pets, uh, it's a pretty good lifestyle that it eventually can get old. Yeah. Um, but but you get to reap benefits and see the world. Um, sometimes see the world. You might be uh, closed up in the office for quite some time, depending. Yeah. But you get the opportunity to go out to places that you would never get to travel to. Um, so Des Moines, Iowa, for example. I wouldn't see myself traveling out to Des Moines, Iowa unless it was for work, right? Yeah. Um, it's cold. It's in the middle of the country. I'm an East Coast guy. Uh, probably would never travel <laughs> out there. However, I spent some spent a significant amount of time out there now, and, and I've been to Des Moines. I've been to Iowa. Yeah. So across, this, across the state off the list that I probably would have never gotten to. Um, and and it's great. I Yes, as you said earlier, I have a lot of travel points. I've got plenty. I can basically stay and, you know, I hotel chain I want to for several nights just based off of coins um, and that's great but it definitely does uh, take a wear on and a toll on your body um, you know I was traveling Sunday through Friday working you know 60 plus hours a week yeah and uh, and you know it, it's tiring hopping on that plane really getting on Friday night and then having Saturday to yourself and then you're back on the plane now Sunday yeah um, so it, it, it can be glorious, and um, but it also can be painful. It just depends on what your company's doing, the, um, the, the project itself that you're working on, because a lot of people get to travel Monday through Thursday, and I'm telling you, that's ideal. Work yeah. from on Friday or work from the office on Friday, um, and that's a beautiful situation. Uh, but it, it partially depends on what products you, projects you get assigned to. 
um, as well as, uh, you know, how open you are to taking advantage of the opportunities that you have. Yeah. So for me, taking advantage of that all travel was awesome and, and rewarding, but I know a lot of people that just like to get home and they don't really like being out on the road. Yeah. They, or they might have a, a, a spouse at home and they want to go home and see them. Right. But fortunately, I, I've, I've been single and, and haven't had the need to go home. So it's worked out really well for me. That's awesome. Um, for, yeah. So it, it just depends on the situation that you have and, and really what's going on in your life. Yeah. Uh, it can be really glorious if you're single and hungry and you really want to get out there and get after it and see a lot of the different things, see a lot of different clients. Traveling is spectacular. Uh, but if you're more of a homebody, I, I, it might not be for you. And that's something that probably when you're interviewing for a job in, in this field, you probably want to ask, hey, how much travel am I going to be doing? Because <laughs> if you're not interested in it, um, you got to let them know immediately in the, up front. Because if you're not up front about it, chances are you're going to get some on the road. Okay. Um, that's, that's a really good perspective on it. And thinking about like how it wears and tears on your body just a little bit, right? I think mind over matter in my, in my humble opinion. And I think that if you think to yourself, like I can do this and I'm going to live this lifestyle for the next five to 10 years and you really commit to it, then you'll be fine. Right now you obviously go through the trials and tribulations of being tired on say you have to travel, like you said, on Sundays through Fridays and really only having that Saturday to yourself. But as I've, and, and I'm just saying this, as I've gotten older, I've realized that I actually enjoy work a lot more than I thought I would because it's like thought provoking. It's allowing me to think in, in a deeper capacity than I've ever thought before. I get to interact with different people. But the other aspect of it too, is that I learned personal health tips from people at work and how they go about their routines, whether they work out in the morning, whether they work out in the evening, whether they work out during lunch, um, what they're eating during the day as well. And my question for you, Andrew, is how do you maintain good health? I mean, I'm looking at you right now, dude, you're you're jacked. Like you're, you're, you're not, you, dad bod is not coming in hot in any way, shape or form. Right. So how do you work 60 plus hours and then also balance the fact that you want to maintain a healthy ish lifestyle where you're not eating at a McDonald's or eating out at a restaurant every night? Or if you are, maybe you're getting something that's a little bit healthier. I just would love your perspective on how to maintain that type of health, especially as regardless if, if you're traveling for work or not, but like if you're traveling, you should still at least be able to maintain. Yeah. You have to be very conscious of it. Um, that is something that, you know, as I'm out every week and I'm still traveling every week. Um, and sometimes right now I'm in a town that doesn't have many food options. Right. Yeah. Um, so it, it can be tough, but it, you have to be very conscious of it because one of the glory, glorful things of being on the road that I actually didn't harp on earlier is, is the fact that primarily your company's paying for all of your food that you're that you, and, and, and all of your expenses uh, that it would take for, you know, you to be able to be out there. Yeah. So it, it, they, they pay for your food, which actually is an extreme benefit that I can't believe I missed because my accounting side is like tingling right now where it's like, hey, you get to save a lot of cash. That is one thing that, I, I mean, especially on my Sunday through Friday project where I'm getting tired, one thing I continually reminded myself of was, hey, <laughs> I really only have expenses for just about one day of the week. Wow. And, um, so I, I was able to save up a lot of my normal, you know, weekly expenses, the groceries, et cetera, because I didn't have to pay for myself. 
Um, but you, I, I, going back to the health conscious part of it, it's, you really have to be aware of what you're doing. And I make it a, I make it part of my routine that I have to get in the gym at least a few times a week. Okay. Um, and, I, and I try to eat relatively healthy. You know, I have a, it, the, those cheap meals that all the yeah. fitness advisors are telling you to. I, you know, I have one, one day where I give a little bit of splurge, but usually on that day, um, I'll try to lift uh, to, to kind of counteract on that on that fact that I'm being a little gluttonous. Yeah. Um, but but it's something that you, especially while you're traveling, you have to be very aware of because when you're going out, you're not preparing your own food. You're getting portions that are usually a lot larger than what you would eat at home. Yeah. And so and you have to be very cognizant of the fact that people are probably preparing your food with a lot more butter than you would at home. Okay. People are going to give you serving sizes that are good for two people. Um, And so one thing that I've kind of implemented in my life and it's worked really well for me is the whole intermittent fasting thing. Yes. I don't eat breakfast and, and it keeps my calorie count down, but I have to be very aware of it because I can become a pretty thick boy pretty quickly if I'm not paying attention to it. Yeah. Um, so, as much as I as as much as I would love to say that I can eat anything I want and you know work all these hours and one thing about working a lot of hours is it's that I'm sedentary I'm sitting in a seat for a lot of the day yeah Um, so I try to work walks in you know like a little 15 minute break just about usually one in the morning and one in the afternoon okay just to make sure that I'm getting up and, and getting a little bit of activity um, and it helps clear my mind. And, and usually that's what I'm thinking about. Uh, that's usually when my best thoughts come out. Yeah. When I hop and, and step out for 15 minutes and just walk around. And it's like, you get the opportunity to digest. And that's usually where I'll have that thought provoking solution to the problem that I'm currently having. And, and I'll go and implement. Um, but you have to be very conscious of it when you're traveling because, like I said, you're not preparing your own food and the opportunity, like <laughs> you have the opportunity at your fingertips to go out and be as gluttonous as you want to, if you want to. Yeah. That's, that's super interesting. I, I thank you for that, man. I mean, first off, thank you for sharing the additional benefit of the fact that like, you know, everything is paid for and you're saving a crap ton of cash. Right. And you're not really, like you said, you have one day of expenses. And if you want to make that a $10 day, it really could. I mean, you can make it a twenty dollar day, and then you're like, "Well, the rest still goes into savings." And then the exactly. other, the other part that I find that super interesting is the walk aspect of it. And this is something that I have never talked about on this podcast, but it's a really good point because when I think about just myself, you, other people that I know that have great ideas, great thoughts. Um, I mean, we all do, right? Like we're all working so so much during the day. And when you're behind your computer, you're thinking about the task at hand and how you're going to get that done and how you're going to get that done in a, you know, the best way possible and also the most efficient way possible too, because you don't want to spend too much time on it. But when you take that break, whether it's, you know, I'm going to say going to the bathroom, because that's where I have my best thoughts, taking a walk, you know, going to the gym during the day, like having that little, whether it's a five minute break, a 10 minute break, a 15 minute break, even a 30 minute break, like allowing yourself to think outside the box and just have your mind wander is when all of a sudden those great like light bulb ideas kind of click and it's like bing, boom, like, holy crap, I got it. And then you figure it out and you're like, 
I got to get back to my desk now because I got to figure this shit out. Like you, you get so excited about it because you have that one thought, that one idea that truly, I mean, sh- there I've, my dad is an entrepreneur and when he tells me about like some of his greatest ideas and some of his greatest like events that he's put on, they all come to him, whether he's at the gym or whether he's on the toilet and like, he might kill me for saying that, but like I, me too. I mean, like you are so- in solitude, you're sitting by yourself, but you're also not thinking about anything besides like, you know, whatever's on your mind and your mind kind of wanders. And then all of a sudden you're like, Um, I guess I, let me take a step back. So it all starts with my interview process and kind of how I was exposed to, um, the firm practice, um, during my summers, you know, my summer jobs, I I never worked at a law firm. I worked at state agencies, federal agencies. Um, so I didn't really know how a firm operated outside of, you know, talking to friends and talking with my dad. Um, I didn't know the, you know, the intricacies of, of how a, a firm operated, um, but it was something that I wanted to learn. And so my, my interview process for me, cause you know, it, it, in addition to you trying to impress the firms that you're interviewing with, um, it really is a good opportunity for you to see how, um, the culture of the firm is the, the firm that you're interviewing with. And so I was Absolutely. able to interview with, large firm, you know, big laws is the common firm for it or common term for it. Um, mid-sized firms that have about, um, a hundred to 300 attorneys. Um, and then, you know, smaller firms that, you know, a hundred attorneys and less, um, those, I really got the broad spectrum to find out which one I liked. Um, and for me personally, I, I like the small law firm, uh, culture, um, everybody, you know, it's, it's truly like a family, um, and, and they've, they've brought me in like a, it was family too. So, um, and I think that just depends on the person. Some people love the grind. Some people love the big law grind, um, which, which is certainly there and it's attractive. And I still think it might be attractive to me, but for right now, uh, you know, the, the small law firm environment is something that was appealing to me. Yeah. I think that's really cool because, it almost is the same exact thing as like businesses, right? You could either go work at the big Fortune 500 companies that sounds really, really sexy, or you could go work at a smaller, um, like small to mid-sized company that still one makes a lot of money and does great work, but you just get a lot more exposure um, across different things, right? Like you get like a, a little bit more breadth when it comes to the work versus maybe the depth of the work that you would get in terms of going to like a bigger company or a bigger firm. And sure. um, well, so that, that kind of leads me to my next question for you, because I'm interested about like the differences between big and, and smaller firms in terms of like the cultures. And while you're speaking about the, at least from like your interview perspective, right? Like, because you did get to interview with some big, uh, with some big law firms. And then also you ended up choosing the, we'll call it a smaller law firm, even though it's just I don't even, I'm not trying to say like in a bad way. You know what I mean? No, no. Yeah. yeah. Hey, believe me, there's, there's times, um, some of the, the small law, f- law firms, if you can believe this, um, is, is mostly a few of them that I, that I interviewed with. Um, a lot of them were attorneys that worked in big law, um, the big law firms, and they decided that they wanted to downsize and, and work for themselves for lack of a better term. Um, yeah. and I guess they found more gratification out of that. 
Yeah, no doubt. And that's usually when people become like partners and all that fun stuff. And then they get to also have their name on it too, which I think is pretty dope. Yeah. But, um, so taking a step back, let's, let's think about getting into law school and before you even got your job and all that fun stuff, when you were getting ready for the LSAT, you said you took it a couple of times when you were at Clemson, how, how was that process and what was that process like? And what did you do to really help prepare yourself to get ready to get a good enough score on the LSAT to go to a really great school such as Wake Forest? Yeah, so the the LSAT, I I took it. I believe I took it. Um, it's it's been so long, but uh, it's in in reality, it's only been a few years. But um, for me, it was uh, I took you know the 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 most traditional way to study for the LSAT. It's doing an in person prep class. Um, yeah. You know, you go and it, you know some of them. So a notable one is Kaplan. Kaplan's probably I think that was what I took Kaplan was it was the traditional in-person preparation class um it lasted for about two months and I did that in preparation for the LSAT um but in reality you know looking back on it I would recommend to people that are that are thinking about taking the LSAT and thinking about going to law school that you study at least three to five months um, that, that, that's a good window that I think had I have, uh, had I had studied for, for five months, who knows, I might've been going to Harvard. Um, <laughs> no, but you know, you, it, it takes closer to that five months, I think personally, but you know, it, like I said, it just depends on, on your study habits and how you study. But, you know, at the time you're an undergrad, you know, you've got so many other distractions going on and it's hard to just put, you know, all your focus in for two months. Um, so that that three to five months kind of gives you a little more flexibility to to reach your full potential. Um, you know, given the importance of of the LSAT score, I mean, your LSAT scores compared to your GPA, those are the two big factors that law schools look at: your GPA yep. and your LSAT. And you know, you know, going to school for four years, you know, think about five months is not a crazy amount of time to prepare for you know the next school, prepare for your. Pre- for four-year profession. Um, and so I think just, you know, the undergrad GPA weighs less heavily than your LSAT score. So you do want to take the time and effort to put in. Um, and that three to five months um, is probably recommended. But for me, it was, you know, two months. Um, I, I just went in there. I did the two-month grind. Um, in fact, I, I, took it, um, I took it at Clemson. And I took it at a, in a uh, classroom at Clemson, and there were about 15 of us in this um, LSAT prep class. And I remember the day of our LSAT um, was on a, on a game day. It was a Saturday. It was during football Ooh. season. Um, or I think it was during the spring game. Yeah, it was the spring game was the next day. And everybody was preparing for that and getting ready. But, you know, for me, I, I, was, I was looking to the next step um, for law school. So I had to put my head down and, and study. Yeah. You had to take that one night off. And I mean, yeah. shoot, it pays off. Right. I mean, you think back on it and at the time, you know, it sucks. Like, fuck dude, I do not want to just sit down and look at my books and study and read just to take a test tomorrow. I'd rather be out having a good time with my friends. But sure. I mean, when you look, you look hindsight 2020 and you're like, shit, this is, this is a hundred percent worth it. I'm about to grind through this. I'm about to knock this out the park. And then I'm going to go celebrate that because, shoot, that's a little bit more fun to celebrate anyways. 
Oh, absolutely. It's, you, you know, that's no matter if it seems impossible, if it takes time, um, if you have to put in those long hours, you know, you, you got to do it. Cause you, I think for me, it was just re- having that reminder in the back, the feeling of success, um, self gratification, you know, accomplishment that really kept me going and kept me motivated during that, that LSAT period and going forward today, you know, I still, I still, you know, have times where it's long and, and grueling hours, but, you know, I just look to the horizon, look to see what I'm accomplishing and it, it gives me that extra push. I, I love that. And I love that you said that, Doreen, because it's true. You know, when you're able to kind of get out of the, the present and look at and embrace the suck, essentially, I think that's the motto of the Marines or the Navy or it's somebody in the um, within one of the army branches. But if you embrace the suck for now and then you look for, at the future, you're like, wow, I might have to work 12 hours today. I might have to work on a Saturday. I mean, shoot, we're talking on a Saturday and you got back from work like 45 minutes to an hour ago right? Like you were putting in the hours, but it's because it's going to be worth it during that one point. And I'm just going to be honest. I was up, I told you, I couldn't sleep last night and I was up at like 4am and I was looking back at like some of my old um, high school basketball games, like the state championship games that we won. And I was thinking, and like when I was watching the games though, I wasn't watching it because I was like reminiscing on old times in terms of like the feeling but I remember all the hard work that we put in and all the times where we were like grinding during the middle of the night, running, playing basketball, doing extra sprints after practice, like doing all this travel. And then you see it all come to gratification through uh, for the sport, you know, winning the state championship. But for you, it was getting that good ass LSAT score, going to Wake Forest, and then also working for a firm, which is within the Carolinas, living where you want, making really good money practicing the law that you want to do. And I say all that because it's like, we just got to embrace the suck today and keep moving forward and be able to kind of get out of ourselves to be able to see that, that hindsight 2020. Otherwise, like you could just get kind of lost in the grind and, and you get lost in the day to day, which is what none of us really want. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And it's, I think it, it, it all just kind of stems on, on doing what you, what you love, what you want to do. Um, Because, you know, work's going to consume a large part of your life. It's going to consume both a a large part, both of our lives. And, you know, the only way to make the only way for it to be truly satisfactory to you um, is to do what you believe in um, and and doing what you think is great work. Um, And the only way to do that great work is to love what you do. So I think that's kind of the, the kicker right there is, you know, you put in these long hours. Um, but it almost, it's kind of cliche. It doesn't seem like work because you're liking what you're doing. Um, but that's. We're talking about you are on back order, which is a good, but bad thing at the same time, mm-hmm. because so many people continue to buy it, but at the same time, that's just more work on your end. And then you're also right. with production, all those different things of being an entrepreneur, but I know you're on another venture right now working on. Yep. Mind 1990, and I believe that's the name. Could you take us a little bit through that and also how you transitioned or how you still continue to operate with dress downs and this Mind 1990? Yeah, sure. So I'll uh, dress downs in Mind 1990 kind of like weave together. So let me explain. So dress downs, like you said, I, I was like running, running that, um, ran into production, things like that. And that's just stuff you kind of learn from doing about how to you know, source your materials and when they're going to come in and allowing enough time. So you get 
things like back orders, which is like you said, a good problem to have. Um, but you know, I was like, you know what, I'm just taking too much time running the business to business side, you know, the business to consumer side is really sustained by Amazon. Like Amazon is clutch. I know they have their drawbacks to people about, you know, the founder, but at the end of the day, they're able to put me in front of so many eyeballs um, that I don't necessarily grab from my site. So they very much handle the business to consumer side. Once I send my inventory to them, I just look, literally go in, look at the metrics. I, I very rarely ship myself on Amazon unless I'm back ordered because there's no inventory in the warehouse to fulfill. Um, so I was like, you know, I need to start looking at different sales groups because there's sales reps that do that, right? Like they'll take your product, they'll put it into stores. And I was like, let me start looking at sales reps groups that do that will handle the business to business because it's not my strongest point. My strongest point is in the marketing, public relations, business to consumer. You know, I landed them in Bed Bath and Beyond. I kind of want to grow that business side, but there are people who are way better at this, who already have the connections. And so I really was like, okay, I'm going to give it up to not give it up, but I'm going to let a company, a sales rep group company actually based on Seattle, they run the business to business side for me now. So I get to like sit back and relax. And with that kind of freedom that I have now that I'm not out there trying to like send emails to Walmart, send emails to Target going back and forth. Now that I have that freedom, I was kind of like thinking, okay, what's my next idea? My mom's like, okay, that's great. What's next? You know, there's no such thing like entrepreneurs. You never, it's never just one thing. It's, it's addictive to make your own money your own way. I'm not going to lie. Um, you know, cause you have a lot of say and I have a lot of control because it's my business. So um, it kind of led me to my 1990, which um, is my next business venture. I guess you say it's a service. It's different. Okay. Um, it's not a product. Dress Downs is a product. And so now I'm going to kind of the service side, which is really exciting, but also very nerve wracking because it takes a lot of capital and a lot of money. It's not something I can bootstrap. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and the services industry is going to continue to grow. Right. Right. And that's one thing that we were just talking about before we even start recording is just the fact that people are going to continue to want more and more services and need less and less goods. Right. Right. And that's just kind of like how the industry is moving nowadays. But when you talk about bootstrapping versus needing some actual capital, when you started dress downs, you bootstrapped the hell out of that one. Right. Yeah. I mean, you had your PR job working with the with the Chicago Bulls and then you left that went out on a on a whim to well a whim to others not to you right right a calculated exactly. risk right? I like that yeah well Get it's it. it's true right like certain people just don't understand how entrepreneurs think and how they can have so many different thoughts and how they could think so quote unquote irrationally when in reality right. like to you it's rational it's a rational decision and who am I to fault you for ever making a decision and a decision that proved to be successful right so Looking back on it, it's right. like, who, who the hell am I to say anything about that? But you talked about bootstrapping and then you also talked about going into the finance or going into the services industry and how you need financing to help right. you get that off of the ground. What do you what do you mean exactly by like bootstrapping first off? And then second off, can you help us understand like what the differences are between the two and how you're approaching both different both businesses a little bit differently? Yeah. So bootstrapping, if someone's bootstrapping, kind of like pull yourself up by the bootstraps when you start a business, you're taking your own money, the biggest risk, you know, you're pulling out your savings, you're throwing all of your own money at it. Um, some people consider that when you do angel kind of 
round that that's bootstrapping as well because you know if you hit up your friend like hey if you give me five grand i'll let you in early um but that you're going in knowing you're going to raise more um but some people don't do that but for me i just knew with this new venture of mind that I can't just put money into this, my own money, because it's going to take so much money. And if I want to do it right and I want to do it correct and I want it to really make an impact that I have to take on outside investments, there's kind of like no way around that. When you think about all the technology and the back end that it's going to need in the back and forth, for me to do that myself, it would just, instead of getting, let's say, instead of accomplishing the goal within, you know, a year and getting it off the ground, it would take me three years just because it's so much, uh, you know, capital that I need. And so bootstrapping is kind of out of the question. I've done bootstrapping. I want to give up that kind of like worry because it is when you're bootstrapping, I'm just, I'm blessed enough not to have any kids or a mortgage that I need to pay. But when you think about all the companies that bootstrapped, you know, major brands that bootstrap companies themselves, they put their families in really big, financial, you know, potentially dangerous situations. Like you're taking a gamble with your own money. And I told myself, you know, that was, it gave me like anxiety, heart attacks. It's just nerve wracking. And I don't want to do that again. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to get some capital. I'm going to apply to some accelerator programs. I'm going to get this done. Um, And, you know, there's some really great accelerated programs out there. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to apply. And so, yeah. And for those that don't know what an accelerated program is, it's, they help you. Like you tell them your idea, they give you cash and they help, they want to see you succeed. And so I'm like, this is perfect for my idea. So. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I know that some colleges, um, yeah, big enough have some accelerator programs. They some do. MBA programs have accelerator programs. Um, I think my brother was at, man, I might butcher this and he might kill me for saying it, but, uh, he was at like a think tank, uh, down yeah. in Texas. And it's basically where you get to go pitch your ideas and then companies will, I say steal them. He says take them and run with them and then also credit <laughs> to it. I'm like, I, I think that they're stealing uh, them. That sounds like yeah. a steal. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they do give you like a monetary award, but that's, I mean, it just sounds like something that is is pretty easily accessible, right? And I mean, right. when we were talking about this earlier, you were saying like they started off with like 50 applicants or it, way more than that. No, and then they, they start off with thousands and then they narrow it down to probably, because I could see from the sign up that they've clearly gotten more because you had to sign up for the second round interview. And I could see that, oh, like, you know, there's not that many slots left to sign up. But knowing how many admissions they get, you can kind of see. And so now I'm waiting here back for the third round. And then if you get through the third round, they kind of have this. The one I signed up for is called Generator out in um, um, Madison. And they do kind of white glove approach because they're so, they only select five companies you know, they help you boost it by giving you a hundred thousand dollars and then they handle every aspect of your business and they take about 7%. So, I mean, that's a great, if you're going to start a company, I got to say, it's not bad at all. If you're going to take that risk, um, especially on a business model that I know is possible to, you know, become huge, but there's just so many more risks that I'm going to face that I, I would need professionals that know that industry. So. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And it's, it's like, not only are you going to get the capital, and I think this is almost exactly what you just said, but you're getting the capital from them to help get the business off the ground and running, but you're also having their expertise within the industry yeah. and within businesses in general, right? Like you can't fault somebody who's older than us and has just a lot of general business experience to have more experience than us. That's why right. you go to them for advice. That's why you go to these accelerator programs because 
not only do I need your money, but I also need your, your help. Wisdom. Yeah. Too, I need right? your wisdom. And exactly. And I need your guidance. Right. And it, I might not need your help making every single decision because at the end of the day, this is still my business. And mm-hmm. you know, you own 7%, I own 93%. So a lot of my say still is what we're going to be doing. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm going to need your guidance and direction to help us understand where we're going and also what roadblocks we could see ahead because we're going to have to break through those eventually in order to yeah. become and, and see that success that we want to see. And I think that's one thing also that I just said, this is kind of, I'm bringing this all full circle is them allowing you to see these roadblocks ahead that you don't necessarily see all the time. Right. And yeah. I'm sure you saw this multiple times, uh, you know, if not in the year weekly with dress downs is that you see all these, you run into all these roadblocks that you're like, Holy shit. I was just blindsided. I had no idea that that was going to happen. Right. And these advisors, for example, like I watch a lot of Shark Tank. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you could see me sitting down literally watching Shark Tank in the middle of the night. Like I was up this past weekend at dang 2 a.m. Woke up and was like <laughs> wired. You know how when you wake up in the middle of the night, and you're just like, oh, holy crap. I am wide awake. Um, I'm going to watch Shark Tank. <laughs> I'm literally, I was like, you know what? There are new episodes of Shark Tank. I'm going to tune into that. <laughs> um, and side, side little funny note, when I first started at Starbucks, the people who founded, um, oh wow. now I'm Oh, kidding. Bantam oh, Bagels. Bantam Bagels. That was, so they were at my office like three weeks after I started and I was telling people on my team, they were like, tell us something unique about you, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, I'm a big Shark Tank fan. Right. Like I didn't really have much unique to say, at least I didn't think I did. And, um, anyways, they were in our office with Lori Grenier and I was so excited that, I faked that I had to go to the bathroom. So like <laughs> somebody on my team came over and they're like, Chase, the owners of Bantam Bagels, they're like walking towards our bathroom. Like you should walk over there in like two minutes. And I was like, okay, cool. So like a couple minutes goes by, <laughs> I go over there and I start walking by and I'm like, oh my God, you guys are the owners of Bantam Bagels. So I acted total fanboy, total fanboy. And then I was like, would you guys mind if I get like a selfie with you? And they're like, yeah, 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 for sure. So I take a selfie. I'm pumped, right? Like at this time, I'm actually going to pee my pants. So I do have to go to the bathroom. And they're like, hey, do you want to meet Lori? Like Lori's over here oh, in this hallway so cool. like, by herself. But listen to this. You know what my dumbass said? No, I'm good. Thank you guys so much. I was so <laughs> excited that I met them that I literally was like, I'm the not actual shark like, on the show. And yeah, right. The person who gave them the money, who was there to be their advisor, their lead, their their the person who helped them grow their business from and just a like, small no, little good. shop in New York Thank to you. getting a deal with yeah, getting a deal with dang Starbucks. I was like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not worried about meeting her. I just want to, I, I just want to meet you guys. <laughs> I like your pickles. That's funny. Good <laughs> lord. Um, yeah, yeah, you missed was- the mark on that. Um, you know, kind of negotiates your thing and it, pretty much everything is the same price, 2500 But when I exited, um, I, I booked two on my own for 10000 So going from two to 10. Amazing. You know, it's probably. Well, and you're just going to keep leveling up, right? Yeah. And and like you said, it's it it's not, it's there's not many people out there who are like for like, like yourself, like myself. And it's hard to continue to be inspired when you're not able to see somebody above you and be like, okay, like I see where I'm reaching and where I'm going to try to get to and I could be there. Right. And I feel your frustration because as I work in, you know, a corporate environment, I look at my leader sometimes and I'm like, really can't see myself as any of you guys. Like, first off I'm bald. I lost my hair at 25. Like a lot of you guys are 
older yeah. white men, right? And and that's not to I'm not going to fault no, them right, right. for being there because that's their yeah, that's yeah. their situation, right? But I'm just saying from my from my aspect, I look at them and I'm like, I really like you guys as people, but I also yeah. don't want to be you because that's not who I am, and I can't physically change who I am genetically right. to be that. No, and you all have I can say, to, Chase. I mean, I think I. The point where no. I'm very proud of the multiculturalism that we both bring. You know, I'm very proud that by existing, we speak to different demographics. And by the way, I've also seen um, who likes your posts. And it's a lot of the people who like my posts, right? Young, diverse people of color uh, who are not also just one race, right? So you're seeing Afro-Caribbean, you're seeing Indian, Italian. I, I don't know. I mean, there's just a lot of different combinations of people who, but again, by virtue of you and I existing, we are connecting to them uh, because for better or for worse, and some people have told me this before, and I used to laugh, uh, but now I get it, especially um, like you and I, our skin tones, and this is something I, I realized the first time I went on your Instagram, because of the way we look, um, we're generally ethnically ambiguous, right? Um, because we're sort of not in the spectrum of skin color. We're kind of in the middle of everything, you know? Yeah. Uh, so as a result, a lot of people see themselves in us, you know? So I'm getting the black demographic who uh, identify with me being a person of color. I'm getting Indian people who say, oh my God, I'm Indian. So I think that's beautiful. So I, I have no desire to fit in. I have no desire to be, uh, um, you know, white at all, you know, and, and I think that it's a strength. So I think the way I look at it is like, you're amazing. You're awesome. Definitely learning from you, but oh my God, let me also teach you about my culture. Let me also teach you about connecting with uh, diverse consumers. Yeah. And, and now we have this beautiful dialogue. Cause I think, um, I'll also take your man, woman, like polarization and say, there's a lot of white versus people of color polarization. Uh, that I see every day. It's like, well, it's your fault. And I'm just like, you guys, we're here to be one, not, you know, fight. Because if we keep fighting, then there's no resolution. Also, because if you've noticed, a lot of white influencers struggle to connect to people of color. I don't know if you've seen that. But if you see the likes on their posts, oh, yeah. like you go down the list and you're like, what's the same? They're all white. Yeah. yeah. Right. Likewise, people of color. I've seen that a lot too. So people of color, what's the same? Everyone's a person of color who likes their posts. And so I know I'm trying to be uh, one of the first, just I'm everything. Like John is on my team. Mm -hmm. Jamil is on my team. Uh, and Shantanu is on my team. We're all, we're all together. We're go-getters, you know, cause I, I have no tolerance for like division anymore. You know what I mean? Uh, so yeah. Oh yeah. There's, I mean, there's, it's 2020, right? I mean, it's been a crazy year, but we, we have to be nice to each other and empathetic. And I think to your point of being kind of in the middle of the spectrum, that's something that I am very fortunate about because I've been able to connect with right. both sides and it feels so, and it's, I'm not changing anything about myself, right? I'm just genuine. I'm chased when I show up because I'm like, you guys are all awesome and we all have different backgrounds, but we're all just here to do the same thing. And that's a genuinely right. be happy. So i just absolutely loved everything that you said. Um, and I know that we're running short on time here. So I'm going to say no, thank yeah. you, Shinjini. This was absolutely awesome. I'm super happy that we got to connect this morning and being able to hear your story from you firsthand and honestly sit across the screen from you. I, I'm on cloud nine right now. And I'm very, very excited to even be able to get this podcast episode out to all the other go getters and people who are going to be tuning in because you gave us some some gems, yeah. <laughs> like some very, very key gems and just growing and, and being your yourself and 
kind of like just owning yourself and, and owning who you are and not devaluing yourself. So I just want to say thank you because this was so much Thank fun. you, Chase. And, and trust me, I mean, anytime I have these conversations of monetization, um, I tend to feel a little uncomfortable just because I know my peers are not approaching it with the same aggression. But you know what? They're also not getting paid what I get paid, you know? And, uh, and so yeah. I definitely want to end with this idea that you have to be a go-getter in, in going and getting anything, your, your race at work, right. As well as your I don't know, speaking engagement. Fee. Again, I realize that the speaking engagement fee is not relatable to most people. For most people, it is sort of your salary, your stock options, your bonus, uh, and, and maybe your raise. So my advice to you is as a go-getter, you got to negotiate for the bonus. You got to negotiate for your raise. You have to articulate the value that you provide to what you need. And also, this is something I've been doing, Chase. What do you physically need, not to survive, but to thrive, right? And so I have a mental number that once I hit this, I'm good. Now, anything else beyond is sort of just kicks and giggles. And, you know, I, I almost just wanted to, you know, show how, how cool I am. But with this much money, I mean, I, I can do whatever I need to do and then some, you know, and this is just me, myself and I, so I'm not thinking about a family. I'm not thinking about husband and kids. And cause obviously that adds more, right. But I'm saying if I myself earn this, we will be good. Whatever your house payment, you're there. Cause sometimes I feel like a lot of people following me, go getters, they're not analyzing. So there's a whole lot of conversation of I'm broke, but when I ask them, what do you need? I'm not really getting an answer. So, I mean, so an example. Mm-hmm. is uh you know i'm uh whatever you know 50 uh, my my daughter is um you know uh, i don't know 20 or whatever uh, she's in college her tuition is 60,000 a year and i'm paying for it and you know i'm budgeting about 250 plus for her right so i mean if i were you and i'm like okay i don't want any debt i don't think uh, making 600k would be awesome you know what i mean like i almost want a number from people which is why like in front of me i have a whiteboard here going i want to sell now i'm at a point where we're selling social media content partnerships so i want my social media content partnership the next one to come in at that level i literally have a number here um, which i don't tell people yeah. right but that is my mental number because i know that if someone comes to me with 500 dollars, that's not going to do anything for me because sometimes I feel like the problem yeah. is a lot of go-getters following me don't have any internal numbers. You know what I mean? So there's just sort of out there going, mm-hmm. I'm here to accept whatever. And guess what happens, Chase? They end up accepting whatever. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's usually a lower amount than they actually right? want to. Because right. when I start doing my analysis, then I'm like, okay, so I got to buy this. I got to get this. This is 300 Budgeting, I guess is what I'm saying is almost budgeting and say my whatever personal expenses, my, I don't question. So if, you know, some guy has a huge gaming hobby, literally this guy spends $4,000 a month on gaming, whatever. I don't judge, but you got to tell me that, you know, so if I'm your boss and, and you are expecting money, then say, you know what? 20,000 a month would be solid you know gaming's 4,000 16,000 hangout rent whatever I'm good I I think that's an analysis that's amazing because what really hurts me Chase is when people message me saying "Um, anything I would love to do this self-development thing this thing but I don't have money and that's when I'm like you guys you have to budget for self-improvement and self-development and you can't just be on this hamster wheel and then and then you're gonna die you know so where is the money for the training where is the money for my book you won't believe, Chase, how many people, you know, they'll routinely say that I don't have $12, you know, and for me, it hurts. I don't judge, but it hurts because I'm like, this could really help you, 
you know, and the fact that we don't have it probably means that we're not thinking about every single aspect of what we need, you know, so because somewhere that also takes self-respect, you know, to sit down and go, oh my gosh, I really need $20,000 a month. Like that would be fantastic. You know, I think that requires a lot of like balls, to be honest, you know, to just say that. And then like where I am is I'll say, okay, I need $20,000 a month. How do I get there? Like, I know that's the question I'm asking. I don't know. Do I do the consults? Do I do the partnership? Do you know, which is like interesting because my immigrant family, that's not a model that they're comfortable with because they're like, I just want the guaranteed paycheck, whatever it is. But my argument is the guaranteed paycheck is going to be a lot less than $20,000 a month. So you either have to, I don't know, negotiate a salary like that or start a business, preferably a digital business that can get you $20,000 a month. But I I really want to end with this, that you really have to know what you need. And a lot of the go-getters following me, like I'm just getting a lot of things like, oh, I'm broke. What do you need? Oh, I don't know. I'm broke. Like, do you see what I'm saying? So you're you're stuck in the cycle, right? So how do you get out of it? How do you be a go-getter? How do you step out of this hole? You have to know your goal. Like to go get a goal, you have to know what the goal is. So I think that's something that it's like, I guess, financial literacy 101, but I just, I'm not really seeing it uh, a lot, you know? Yeah. No, and I I think that's very important to be said. And I appreciate you saying that because if you don't have a goal, like an end goal, then you're just going to go down all these different paths and you're never going to really know. My people, you're going to be broke all the time is what I'm saying. Because I... I very, no, I'm very exactly. honest with them. So I'm like, hey, my book is out. I'm broke. Three weeks later, I'm still broke. And I'm like, you guys, what what are we doing here? Yeah. And like you said earlier, progress, right? If I don't have $12 yeah. this week to spend, what can I cut back on in order to make sure that I, I do have $12 to spend? Mm-hmm. Or like you were saying earlier, what can I do right. to get there? And if it means cutting back on certain things and then also taking a second job or whatever that that entails to get to that level of fulfillment and that money that you need to fulfill your life. So that way you can do and thrive in whatever it is that you need. It's like, just take a step back, think about what it is. And then you need to develop, at least in my, in my personal life, I need to develop a plan. It's like, Hey, I know my, my goal. I know a couple of steps on how I'll get there. I may not know everything, but I'll figure it out on my way. And then let's just attack it. That and also Chase, I do want to say, and this is something that I've been thinking about a lot is uh, I want to do the least for the most money, you know? So I have been in situations where I have just been fully overcommitted that I'm going to deliver this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And it actually became overwhelming to me that when I saw the SOW, I saw the proposal, you know, it was a newsletter partnership and a this and a speaking engagement. I was like, this is very overwhelming. So I actually had to return some funds in the past uh, because I told them, I said, I I can't do this. You know, so I think what I also want to stress to go-getters is do the least for the most money. Because I think what I have personally experienced is the money has become a burden that I said yes to it because this looks so good. But now I'm having trouble delivering because this is just too much, you know, because I I didn't think it through. I didn't think it through. And each task is very long, you know. So today what I do, social media content partnerships, uh, Chase, pretty much there is some work involved with managing my platforms and making sure the numbers are growing and stuff like that. But other than that, when I sell a partnership at four figures, um, 
it's pretty much the content, you know, so you're getting six posts, you know, I'm going to send you the content and then I just push it out and whatever we get is what we get. If it's 10,000 views, yay. If it's 120,000 views, yay. You know, that's awareness for you. So in terms of execution, it's pretty simple. You see what I'm saying? Whereas I think before, and my concern is some of the people reaching out to me, I have three jobs. I'll just get another one. I don't think that's the solution. You see what I'm saying? Like to have three kids and four jobs, I don't think that's the solution. So I I would also encourage go-getters to think very strategically and creatively about solutions. Because if you want to maximize your life, because again, my degree is in optimization, the variables are sort of, okay, family time, right? Minutes spent with family per week, right? Minutes spent alone per week, right? If you want to maximize all of that, working four jobs is not the solution, right? So I know for me, where I am at now is literally, and I'm not even joking with you. And again, my parents get really mad because that's not, because they're like, why aren't you working? And I'm like, because I created my schedule like that. You know what I mean? Because I'm I'm not trying to burn out, number one. I'm not trying to work my whole life. You know, that's crazy. You know, just like, that's all you do. So stepping back and saying, okay, you know what, I'm going to do this training with my buddy and we're going to split it. It's going to be $500 per person. We're, think creatively, think creatively because four jobs, three days, you're exhausted, you're tired. That's not the solution. You see what I'm saying? Because there's also a variable called quality of life, right? And how you're feeling and how, you know what I mean? So that's a lot of the problem I see as well. So I'll reach out and be like, yeah, like I'm being a go-go, I'm getting my fourth job. And I'm like, that's not, that's not what I suggest at all, at all. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, you see what I'm saying? So, so even with your uh, day job, you know, so if you're working so hard, you're producing so much, but your salary is not really matching up, that's not good. Like that's not being smart. You know, whereas for me, what I'm trying to, again, go to, I'm not there yet, Chase, but with my book right now, it's my memoir 26. I'm sort of DMing people now, like Twitter. I'm like, hey, you know, I'm ready for the book. They are ordering, you know, we're almost touching 700 um, orders, which is great. But, you know, to get to to what I want, which is 14,000, 15,000, I know that I need the platform. I need my website. I need my, you know, sort of automated... turns out plays a huge role in uh, in winemaking so it's something that I studied nothing of in college <laughs> and uh, kind of laughed when I saw bio for non-majors uh, in the class offerings at Stetson I was like I'll never need that uh-uh. um, nope never gonna so, do biology uh, but now here you if <laughs> exactly if there's someone out there who's trying to figure out what to do in college take a little bit of everything because you might as well uh, I actually used my French uh, class that I took uh, shout out to Melanie Stewart uh, for helping me pass French uh, that one semester that I took it <laughs> at Stetson. And, uh, you know, I, that's come in handy multiple times throughout my travel and just oh, being able to speak a little bit of speak a, a little bit of French. It's probably taking you so much farther than me. Who knows? You know, bonjour, je m'appelle Chase, merci. Turns out that's kind of all you need is they just need to know that you tried. So, um, cause I don't know much more than that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, that's funny. Yeah. So take a little bit of everything while you can, but, um, so the fruit just kind of sits and ferments the yeast cells, um, which are either introduced. We have like dried up packets of, of like dehydrated yeast or the really popular kind of trendy hipster way to make wine is to just let the yeast cells that exist that cover basically everything on earth that has some form of yeast on it. Um, 
And so you could just let fruit sit in a room and eventually it would ferment That's um, wild. or to some extent, you know, it probably wouldn't be good, but, <laughs> or more importantly, full of alcohol. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> So let's let's be honest. That's all all we want at oh, the end yeah. of the day. Um, so exactly, that's all the reason you drink. It's fine. Um, but so the the red or white uh, fruits are fermenting over uh, however long you're supposed to let them. Um, you know, it's all been done before, so there's always a recipe that you yeah. can vaguely follow. Um, so that's that's kind of nice. Um, but so after you let it sit and ferment, it's you've either eliminated the sugar or you've left some residual sugar, mm -hmm. uh, which is in the sweet wines, like um, Moscato's and the things that you were talking about. Um, uh, you actually want to leave some reserve, some sugar left. Uh, so they call it, refer to that as RS or residual sugar. Okay. Um, otherwise a, a wine is like a Pinot Noir will be considered uh, dry. So dry is a term that measures sweetness in wine, mm -hmm. uh, not, which is easily to get confused with the feeling that you get when you drink a, like a Cabernet or something and your mouth kind of dries out. Yeah. That's actually the tannins, which are like a whole flavor molecule that um, occur in wine and, uh, and grapes. And actually tea is a, is a big, um, uh, it's a very tannic thing. Oh, yeah. uh, it's kind of that woody feeling and taste. So um, you definitely understand tannins a little yeah, bit better no, than I most because for it, tea. It's that mouth feeling, right? Like that's how I learned what exactly. that was, exactly. where it was like, does it feel like it's still on the side of your tongues? And I'd be like, oh, wait, I can take, like, it feels like the side of my tongues are coated, right? And you don't even realize that when you're just drinking it normally because you're just not aware of it, right? Like, exactly. you nail or you're picking your nose, like, you know, anything could, yeah. could be going just on drinking. time. Yeah. But when you're focused on your tongue, you're like, oh, that, oh, that is, that is the tannins in it. Like, that is making my mouth dry. I do have cotton mouth after drinking this, or I may feel super refreshed, right? So I, I'm with you. I, I totally get that. Exactly. Um, so after it's um, it's either uh, sweet or dry um, or somewhere in between, there's a few different French words to describe that. Um, mm -hmm. And they use the whole spectrum, mostly for sparkling wines. Um, that's the biggest consumer example that actually will tell you if it's dry or sweet. Most wines just don't even tell you if it's a sweet wine or not <laughs> on the label. Uh, they just got to throw it out there. Um, you have to figure it out because if you buy a Riesling off the shelf, it could be sweet or it could be dry. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to know what the region might be uh, for that and, you know, like where it's from. Uh, you know, Germans and, and the French all have very different expressions of it. Um, and, you know, it, it's pretty interesting. Uh, no, I think so. How, how different it could be for just one, one grape. Um, but so after you've let it ferment, you say you want a dry wine. So now your wine is is dry. So now you um, essentially agitate the yeast so that way it kind of dies off and you rack it out of uh, your fermenting vessel. So that would be maybe a huge uh, 15,000 gallon tank or maybe just a, a barrel or maybe just a, a water bottle. Maybe you're just doing it real small scale. I don't know. I wouldn't recommend it. I'd maybe do a little bit more like a gallon jug at least. <laughs> but um, once you do that, you want to separate the wine from the dead yeast cells at the bottom, which um, we call lees in the business. So um, you want to separate the wine from the lees in a process they call racking, which is what they use in, in beer uh, as well, and anything that requires fermentation. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so once you've racked away from the leads, uh, then you have kind of a, a, a vague form of your final product. So that's where it's really exciting to be able to taste the whole way through. Um, that's been something that only working in the winery has given me such an interesting um, way to, and also an experience that I'm still looking for more. You know, I'm oh, still, yeah. I like to think I'm far away from, <laughs> from figuring out what the heck's going on, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm getting closer are. and closer we hopefully are. every day. Part of our journey. And one of the best ways to do it, like you said, is just to get the reps in for tasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you gotta, you gotta get some wines in front of you and you gotta taste. But, um, so once it's dry and you've separated it from the, the yeast, now you're talking, you could put it in your barrel to age on oak. Um, you could put it in stainless just to make sure it doesn't go bad. Um, you, or you could just bottle it right up and put it right there ready to go. Okay. So say for like this Pinot Noir, we would have racked it uh, into the barrel. Uh, we would have used neutral oak which means uh, an oak barrel that's been used before. Mm-hmm. So and on the inside of an oak barrel, they burn the inside. So it's all charred. And that's where the oak flavorness comes from because it's where like the, the wood has been essentially disturbed and burned on the inside. Uh, that interacts with the wine because um, there isn't direct contact. So it'll impart an oaky, kind of smoky, a little bit of burnt flavor to it. Um, or... If you're really good, you know what which barrels taste like what. Yeah. And you're able to like pick it out. Um, but for the sake of simplicity, let's just say here there's one barrel. <laughs> um, so you just uh, just put it in in the barrel, and then you check the process. Um, you'll have some kind of evaporation. Some actually gets absorbed into the barrel, um, and the the neutral barrel is not really meant to impart any kind of oak flavor to the wine. Uh, it's most of the flavor has already kind of been washed away and worn away over the past uh, few couple of uses before. Okay. Um, so it'll, it'll help kind of mellow out any tannins that you might have, but it's not going to do too much flavor wise to the wine. All the changes that happen are largely due to the wine itself. Um, so as it kind of mellows out and becomes a little more smooth, less, um, maybe less acidic and, um, you know, overall harsh to, yeah. to enjoy like a very young wine, uh, which actually is something that we all have a very good experience of drinking. Uh, odds are we're drinking wine that is from like that year or, <laughs> or sooner. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of pretty new wine that is on the shelves, um, which especially if you get to, into wine that has a number on it, like a year, uh, sometimes they don't have numbers on them at all. Um, but if you kind of go, maybe you have to pay a little bit more for that. So maybe like $25, 20 Somewhere in that range, you can you can pay for a bottle with a year on it that's made from one specific vintage year. Um, so those have either been sitting on the in the bottle for a while or they haven't. So that'll kind of change the flavor um, a little bit, hopefully for the better. That's um, <laughs> But there is such thing as waiting too long. Uh, <laughs> okay, that's uh, thank you for bringing us through that because that's super interesting how it goes from grape and being picked right to it starts at the grape i mean at the end of the day and like you mm-hmm. said like it really does besides adding in yeast i didn't hear anything else that gets added in there that, you know what i mean yep. and there's so many different varieties of of wine and it's just it, it's it's blowing my mind right now i'm just i'm i'm very intrigued by this yeah. and it, it's a, it's a very natural process it's unreal and i mean and, and you think about it, it's been going on for years and pe- someone figured this out hundreds of years ago and figured out how to get drunk off this, this stuff. And I was like, 
Right. I'm here sitting here in you know 2020, like holy crap, that is unreal. That is absolutely unreal. And I'm gonna switch gears on you, Tyler, real quickly because we're running a little yep. bit out of time. But my last question for you, it's my last question for everybody. Always, I meet you in an elevator. We got two minutes. We're going from four zero to a hundred. I look at you and I'm like, damn, you look like a pretty smart, pretty wise guy. Do you have like three tips that you could share with me? Just whether it be in wine, whether it be in life, and what what regardless of what it be, like. I'm struggling. I'm really struggling and I just need some help. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, one would like we were talking about with the wine and the tea is get out and try stuff, figure out what you like. Um, some people have the luxury of being able to choose to work in what they're interested in, but I think ultimately everyone can get to that point. Um, you know, sometimes you do have to just work a job just to, to, to pay the bills, Yeah. but you, um, I don't know, having done that, you know, you can do, you can just work towards your passion. And, um, but it only starts when you do, like you just, you just got to start. Um, don't make any excuses about stuff and just really dive in. Um, I've, you don't have to do anything as extreme as moving across the the world <laughs> to, to Australia or even across the country, man. Like that's such a huge thing that I think people get hung up on it. Like, Oh, I need this big extreme moment. If you, you don't, you have most of the tools you need, or you should hopefully by now, uh, have some, something, um, to do. Um, but it, it's, it's not hard. And if you, and if you're struggling, reach out, that's another thing is reach, reach out. Um, there's bound to be someone to help. Uh, oh, hopefully yeah. you have enough, at least one person in your life that, uh, that you can rely on. Oh yeah. Well, and people uh, care enough about you to, to be willing to help, right? Yeah. Like, you don't always have to have to have something to offer to people just in order to make them them feel like they're going to do something for you, right? Like yeah. you can reach out to anybody. I've had plenty of buddies who have flown through Atlanta and I haven't talked to them in you know years. Yeah. And they're like, hey man, like I just kind of need a place to stay. I'm stuck in the airport. Don't really want to sleep in the airport. And it's like, say less, <laughs> say less. Yeah. I'll come pick I you got up. you, man. It's a, it's a yeah. long drive from Alpharetta down to the airport. You better probably get on the way back, right? But like, hey, say less. I'm going to come get you because I care enough about you. For sure. Where you don't necessarily have to do something back for me just because, you know, you're doing something for me. Because I know at the same time when you reach out to me and you have a question for me or you need some help, I'm going to be willing to help you because I'm also going to think, recall on these times when you helped me. And then also, like, it's just who I who we are as people, right? So I, I I'm with you on that one. Yeah. Uh, well, I worked with this one guy in the winery who was a lot older than me, but he would always say, "Tyler, come on, a closed mouth won't get fed, and it doesn't. You don't need someone to necessarily do everything for you, but if you don't ask, you'll. It's always a no. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I still am working on. You know, just trying to get better and better about continuing to ask. Uh, and that's a huge part of the sales process that I learned. Um, you know, is just, you got to kind of ask for the sale as well. Oh, yeah. It's kind of the, the way to go for it. But it's a good point. Like, honestly, if people don't have a reason to help you, it's not that they wouldn't. It's just you didn't ask. Yep. You know, um, you just kind of expected them to know. I've been talking about this a bit recently. It's just how you show up and how you contribute and realizing that there are multiple ways to contribute and that it could be monetary. It could be going to the protests and showing up, it could be helping to organize on the back end. And I think that it should be a combination of all of those things. But I think so many people can sometimes get so lost in like, if I'm not doing the performative post, remember the black tiles on Instagram that were yeah. the talk of a, a day of, um, and then the misconstrued nature of that and how that was 
um, sort of confusing, but how the fear was that some people would feel like that was enough. But I think it's really about thinking about how you can contribute in the way that your skill set will allow. So maybe when I become an attorney, it's advocacy. Maybe for someone else, it's digital design to tell a story. I think all those things need to come together to bring more people into the movement and not just the core traditional ways that we only see involvement or performance or activity within the movement. Yeah, I, I, I love that you brought that up, Paul, because it's, and Cam, I'll get to you right after this, because I think it is all about the action, right? And like, I'm a firm believer that like small impacts and, and very like, and small impacts create a larger impact, right? And like looking at this from a broad spectrum on social media, from the news, it's like, we need to go fight all of these fights. And a lot of people don't realize that it, it, there's so many layers to it, right? And it's like, at least from my perspective, I'm like, I'm going to make the biggest impact I can in my, in my, my current situation. So that way I could help fix, well, progress change for the future, right? And that's just, I, I agree with you so much. What's up, Cam? Yeah, I think the, the thing I wanted to add was exactly to that point. I want to make sure that we're couching this conversation in the fact that the real insidious part of racism is the fact that it is a system that operates like to, you know, even without individual actors. Um, Paul and I actually took this class in undergrad called uh, Race is Socially Constructed Now What? by this professor named Ruha Benjamin. She has incredible um, like TED Talks on YouTube if you want to learn more about her. But one of the analogies that she used to explain systematic racism to me that just continues to be something I always talk about is racism is, is in some ways like an apple orchard. You can have an orchard without individual ap apples, right? Like um, you can... There can be good apples, bad apples. It doesn't really change the fact that an orchard or systematic racism, as the analogy goes, actually continues to exist. So I think so many people get scared out of having the conversation about race because they're scared about the individual label of being called racist. But unless you just do some wild shit that we generally know is not appropriate or not acceptable, people will likely not really call you a racist. I think it's more about... Um, trying to dismantle that broader system and using your voice to do that. It's a more important piece. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for bringing that up, Cam, because that's, I mean, shoot, we even talked about that in one of our last conversations, right? And I negated to bring it up. So I appreciate that. Kyle, did you have, did you have something? No, you guys are good. Okay. Okay. So we're going to get into a, a little bit of the meat and potatoes here. Um, this is probably going to be the last question cause we're going to, we should be talking about this for a little while. Um, but Cam, Paul, um, myself, like we we're black men. Um, there's no way around it. We don't take off a uniform. We can't wash it off. Like there's no way I'm ever going to get rid of this skin color. And I personally never want to get rid of it. Um, but one thing that I've really seen around social media a lot is what not to say to your black friends and microaggressions and, and other things that are now kind of coming to the forefront that have not necessarily been like socially accepted, but they've just kind of been socially ignored. Let's just put it that way. I don't know if there's a right word for it. Um, but as many people who have been in, in these spaces where they're like the unforeseen minority, what are some tips that you'd give like your white friends on how to like better communicate with, with us? And I'm not saying like, again, not a checklist, but like, I think I'd, I'm kind of curious to know like how you would approach this with your friends and just helping them understand as they're, they're giving you calls and asking you questions. I can start. I, I think the one thing that I think 
people have to understand, um, and I think this goes back to the education piece, but it bleeds into questions of how do you engage is, I think just realizing the historical context that black people find themselves in. I think that George Floyd is, you know, the, the most recent, but this has been happening uh, for years now. And I think just in terms of an historical context, when we entered college um, in 2011, the end of our freshman year around February 2012 was the Trayvon Martin incident. And then when we entered our senior year, uh, beginnings of senior year was the Michael Brown incident. And so these inflection points have followed us through major milestones in our life. And at each pivotal milestone, whether it's college or now graduate school, we're, we're reminded of the fact that this thing continues. And so I think that that type of context and allowing people to realize that this didn't just happen overnight with George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or Ahmaud Arbery, this has been going on. And so a lot of this stuff has just been dealt with behind closed doors or in the confines of black spaces where we can talk about that. And so that type of context, I think, gets lost. But in terms of what not to say or, or what to say, I think the hardest part is just that within the black community, there's just such a broad, um, I guess, a perspective on this because people have had to internalize, as I mentioned, for so many years that people have different Absolutely. approaches. So some people will say, I am tired. Please don't reach out to me. Others will say, come to me with any questions. I want to educate because I feel that that can be my way to fight. And so I guess the tough way to answer that question is just that people are just at such different parts in that internalization. Some people are numb. Some people don't want to engage. Some people are trying to figure out how to interpret it. That I think it's that whole point of being comfortable, being uncomfortable and realizing that there's not going to be a one size fits all and that you have to come into the conversation with that understanding that there is no one right way to feel. And so those emails in the work context or those check-in texts are appreciated to some, but don't be surprised if people don't respond, don't take it personally. And I think the broader point I'm trying to make is just in all of this, as a non-Black person or just as a human, trying to find ways to not center yourself and your feelings in this moment, because a lot of those conversations devolve into how I felt. And you have to begin to ask yourself, why am I so worked up on how I'm feeling as I'm trying to engage with someone else? And it goes back to Cam's point, why are you doing this in the first place? Like, why are you trying to educate yourself? Is it to give yourself a pat on the back or is it to really understand? If you're really coming to understand, I feel like you're able to maneuver and, and, and work with people wherever they are without taking it personally or centering yourself or your emotions. Uh, and so I think that's the initial way that I try to think about it. And I encourage others to think about it. It's just people are coming from different angles and trying to actually be authentic and genuine in the conversation so that you may figure out where people are and how willing they are to share and respecting those boundaries. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I really love that. Cam. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a good question. I think um, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about to Paul's point is that it is just so deeply personal. Um, I think what my recommendation is or the, the ways that my friend, just speaking personally, um, like my point of view of one, yeah. um, things that I felt good about is when friends reach out to just say they care, they are, you know, acknowledging that they probably won't ever fully understand it, but they're willing to talk about it or willing to do whatever makes the most sense um, in letting me sort of drive any further conversation from there. Um, I believe that a lot of people, to Paul's point, have um, have reached out 
um, in some ways pretty with the thinly veiled attempt to absolve themselves of their own guilt and just mm-hmm. know that that's very easy to see through, right? Like oh, if yeah. you're actually trying to seek understanding, um, you can do that on your own. You can do that through Google. You can do that through learning and resources. My personal point of view is that if I care about your, your, you know, your, your relationship in my life is worth it. I'm willing to have the conversation until I'm blue in the face. But that is not the case for everyone because everyone has a different emotional reaction to this. So I would say if you are the person that's seeking understanding from someone else, just acknowledge how deeply this really cuts, you know. And and the other thing is, I think also acknowledge how your past actions may have even contributed to someone's negative experience. It's really interesting seeing a lot of people that I went to high school with and college with and and whatnot, posting about these things in sort of these, you know, public displays of solidarity. But I know for a fact they haven't really grown from things that they did in high school and beyond that exhibited the exact opposite. Um, And so I think just to summarize, be, be understanding of where Black people are and the fact that this just brings up so much generational trauma actually um you know and not even just things that the individual that you're speaking to has experienced but things that have been entrenched over centuries of time definitely understand that and then do what you can to uplift their own voice and try to do things that that show that you care um because like i said before saying nothing at all i think is also making a choice so just being acknowledging of of the other people's feelings yeah, I love that. The best thing that I get often are just like texts from friends like, yo, checking in, how you doing? You know, like that That shows more to me personally that you care than, than sending me a long text about how guilty you feel, right? Like, frankly, I don't, I don't care how guilty you feel. I really don't because I didn't contribute to that guilt. Like, this is all something that you're now realizing, which it is what it is. But like, let's talk about how we could fix this and how I might be able to help you because I want you to stand by my side to help me move forward because I know you, I, I at least think you're caring right now, right? Paul, what what'd you have to say? Yeah, I think the other thing I was going to add is I think that it's a two-way street. Like, I think you need to be asking like, what should I say to my black friends? How should I approach my black friends? But I think on the flip side, a lot of what needs to be done is, you know, what can I say to my white friends too? And I don't mean to say that they'd be snarky or anything, but it's just no, but it's the truth. When you, but when you look at the the dynamics of social relationships, I think there was a study um, that alludes to the, the fact that intraracial relationships are so strong across every racial group. So if you are a white person, I think it's like you're 93 or 94 percent more likely to have an all white social group and maybe one non sort of white friend. Similarly, for black people, it's in the high 80s, low 90s of. And so I say all that to say that our our nuclear communities are so sort of stratified by race that me talking on a podcast or me speaking up is going to only go so far. A lot of that yeah. work's going to happen at Thanksgiving around that table or or Christmas or whatever holiday you celebrate. Or as John was talking about, when your friends are having those conversations around, I don't know what to say, and you trying to not necessarily lead those conversations, but be involved in and and not just skipping over them, but diving in to say. I'm confused too. I don't have all the answers, but can we talk about this and why do we think in this way? And so I think it's a two-way street. And I think that a lot of the work of anti-racism and anti-racist movements require 
I think white people to also look inward to their own communities to say, how can I at least initiate and advance this conversation? And we saw the girl who was screaming at her father on that viral Twitter clip. And I think that's sort of one way in which people see it. And I think there were critiques about that whole interaction as well. But I think the, the conversation needs to happen there as well. And so I think it's a two-way street that needs to be activated. No, I agree. within a within the company oh chase let me get in on this one uh, <laughs> uh simone, i was ready for this one yeah simone very strong comments this is a great setup to this uh you know and this is one of our challenges we're in a pandemic we actually need our communities to say that racism is a pandemic right we need them to say it out loud and treat it as such because what i'm carefully watching our companies and individual leaders waiting for the news cycle to change and it hasn't changed, right? They, they believe this would be two or three nights of protesting. Something would change the news cycle and it hasn't. In fact, it's been layered on top, right? Uh, Aunt Jemima will retire, you know, their images and the band-aids change and the Juneteenth, right? I mean, it's one thing after another and they, they are forced to now deal with this, right? The news isn't changing. I do believe ultimately companies have to be willing to take a public stand. You know, it can no longer be, you know, one, everyone takes a step backwards while someone stays, you know, out in front. It's that literally someone needs to take a step forward and, and we have to believe that others will follow. I'll say three things on it. One is when I think about action, you know, I think about things like I've been in touch with a couple of Congress people about uh, HR bill 40 in the House of Representatives, which is a reparations bill. Now, it doesn't go all the way, but it does talk about, you have to watch language, of course, in Congress. It's studying the possibility of a, you know, a reparations. So it's, it's a couple steps away from true action, but you have to spark curiosity to begin with. And, you know, to me, where this could and probably should ultimately lead is no, you, you can't on value from 1868 figure out what reparations would be today. It'd be trillions of dollars. What you can do symbolically is say, hey, black people, here is a stimulus check, right? <laughs> you know, now we, we know what the reaction would be in the white community from that. But when you spark outrage, that's when you've gone far enough, right? That's when you've crossed the threshold. So I think, you know, a public stand would be companies saying, we're going to sponsor this bill. We're going to get involved with this bill. We're going to show a genuine curiosity about this part of the history because we thought people didn't know anything about Juneteenth. Go take the term reparations to them. They'll know even less about that. Mm -hmm. Right. So so I think there's a whole piece around that. And the two Congress people that are sponsoring it, I'm really going to again keep putting the gas on on about that and how i can be supportive individually the second is around voting and uh you know it can't solve everything here today but here's what i'll say going into 2020 34 or 50 states have the ability for some type of absentee voting mail-in voting to some degree before election day that is now expanded to 45 of 50 states uh, mostly due to, you know, concerns about long lines, the pandemic, et cetera. This is why the president is talking about fraud around mail-in voting. 
he knows that, that we're moving to that place and that does not bode well for his situation. I'll tell a quick, quick story inside of this. Last election, my two youngest children were voting for the first time. They were 18 and 19. Early in the day, my wife and I had voted. Uh, we then took them down that afternoon when they both got off work uh, in Austin, Texas, to have them vote. We're standing back outside the polling booth watching our children, a unique experience you don't usually have. You usually just go down and vote and leave. Everyone working in the polling area was 70 years old or older and white. That's just the community that we voted in. So here comes these two black children to go vote. And I'm watching not our children. I'm watching the people watching our children. And the visceral reaction on their face, this disdain for how and why are these two black children showing up to vote? How dare them? That was my takeaway, Chase. And I have no confidence that those votes got counted some way, somehow. The beauty of mail-in voting is it has no race on the card, right? And everyone will have to be voted. You don't know, you, you don't have a choice. You can't throw them out, right? So, so there's that. And then the last thing I'll say is if you go on LinkedIn and you, you type in diversity and inclusion leaders, back to your point earlier, and you look at all of them, 80% of publicly traded company diversity inclusion leaders are black. <laughs> and 80% of that number is black women, mm -hmm. right? And I was talking to a white CEO recently who actually said something. It was like he opened, you know, the heavens opened when he said this. And I don't, I don't mean this disrespectfully. He just said, he said, I realized before I became a CEO and I knew I would do this when I became a CEO that if change is going to happen, I have to do it because I have the power. Uh, getting, wow. getting a white wow. male to say that out loud, when unprompted, unscripted, I mean, that's that's a whole different level. So that, oh, that's yeah. where it's got to be, right? Public companies have to take a public stand and they have to demonstrate real, real action. And the last thing I'll say is an example of, and this is a point was brought up earlier, there is a large corporation to be unnamed, a $500 billion organization who donated $12 million to racial equality. I mean, that is like going to a homeless man and giving him crumbs and saying, I fed you. It just, it doesn't even make sense, right? So we got to step it up. Absolutely. No, I, I really appreciate that. And the, the one thing that I do want to say about voting as well is that it's on all levels that we all have to vote, right? Like, Right now, a lot of people want to be heard. And, and the only way for you to be heard through at least like the government aspect of it is to vote. And that's in local elections. That's in your city elections. And that's also within the national elections as well. So like go out there and, and, and like Joe said, we have absentee voting in 45 out of the 50 states right now. There's no reason for people not to be able to vote anymore. Uh, there's there's truly not. Um, Kim, I, let's let's hear sorry. from you, though. What, what do you think? Oh, go ahead, Simone. I that was such Go a good point. I hadn't even considered that Kim made about absentee ballots don't even have race. And I'm thinking about literally the same situation of my brother went down to our, you know, our place or polling location. They told him he couldn't vote for whatever reason. And my dad had just been there earlier, had to go down there and, you know, shake some tables and be like, what are you talking about? This is his polling location. And that is so eye opening because I hadn't even considered because everything else is like makes you put your race that when you do absentee ballots that you all of them get counted because you don't 
you know, they have to count them. You don't know someone's race. So yeah, that I, just, I was just agreeing. And that was new information I hadn't even considered. So yeah. yeah, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. And I mean, I think, you know, the more that we could just be able to put down our names and less about like our gender or our race or our sexual orientation, the better, because it just kind of makes everything more objective because at the end of the day, like a vote should be objective. It should not be, well, the vote counting should be objective, right? It shouldn't be subjective and nobody should be able to grab it and say, Oh, well, this vote doesn't matter, but this vote matters. Like that's, that's corruption. Um, But Kim, let's, let's hear from you. How do you think that we can start turning these, these into action and really truly um, embodying it within a company standpoint? Um, Well, first of all, I'd like to take credit for what Joe said. But I, I didn't. Oh. Uh, on, that, that I was know, Joe. I'm like, oh, sorry, Joe. <laughs> that was Joe with the great voice. But I, you can have, you can put my name by that. Joe. Will mind. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Group um, project. Yes. Right, yes, yes. We all get A's. We all get A's. <laughs> um, well, when it comes to come on with corporate America, right, Chase? Um, yeah, I mean, because because you work in sports, right, and you have a very diverse group of people that come in, come and play in all of your tournaments and your camps, right? So I think my my question really for you is like, how can like corporate America or even like within your own environment today, like how can this whole, like we stand in solidarity with black lives and with our black brothers and sisters turn into action and how can companies be actionable on this? Sure. Uh, you, you have to listen. You, I mean, it, it, it may sound as simple as that, but you really, you have to listen and you have to create. Uh, Top-level executives need to build strategies and plans uh, to stimulate and sustain a desired culture, but they can't do that without listening to us. Because, again, it goes back to what I said earlier. You know, we're all in our own um, little area. You know, a lot of Caucasian leaders, that's all they know. There's not too many Black people or Hispanics or Asian folks that are in their circle. So when they create a culture, it's usually a culture created by their families or by how they were brought up. Um, so it starts at the top levels. They have to listen and create. They have to encourage, engage, and equip uh, their leaders. And this is what we try to do within halftime sports and within halftime health is we encourage, engage, and equip our leaders at all levels to commit and demonstrate desired behaviors. Those behaviors are created by our staff, by me, by our family. Um, you know, it, it's it's real. I know it, it may sound simple by these words, but it's a challenge. And it's something that many leaders within corporate America, they form their mission statement based on their thoughts, their ideas, um, as opposed to finding out what others believe in their corporation. Um, again, I had mentioned earlier about, you know, changing the mindsets and behaviors. You know, that, that doesn't happen at once. You know, culture transfer, transformation, it takes time, but it also it takes a commitment. You got you have to be committed to it. And I, I look at like NASCAR. NASCAR removed the Confederate flag this year. Beautiful. I applaud them. However, why did it take until 2020 for them to remove <laughs> that flag? Right. You know, me and my wife and I debate this all the time. Okay, we applaud them for taking the action. We are now in 2020. Mm-hmm. And they just decided to remove that that horrible flag from their from their overall mantra and, and all their events. 
it, it only it, it took unfortunately it took some black lives being taken for their eyes to be opened to actually have that flag removed. Well, Kim, I think to that point, if there wasn't, and this is back to what you said, Chase, just insert one black person in the room and see how things change, right? And all we had to do is put one black NASCAR driver. That's it. One. Yeah. Power yeah. of one. If he wasn't there, the flag is still waving, right? That, yes. Yeah. That's I how know. crazy this is. I completely agree with you, Joe. And it, it's it's sad. It's sad that it took some horrific actions to take place for that flag to be removed. It's horrific that that I have to have conversations with my kids about how they need to address police officers when they're pulled over. I tell them, yeah, you give them yes, sir. You look them in the eye. You, you don't you don't you know go crazy on them because I. I want my kids to come back home. So even if they were going 25 and, 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 the, and the police officer said they were doing 65, accept the ticket, move on, and we'll fight it in court. Whereas do you think a Caucasian white family has that conversation with their children about when they're pulled over with the police? I'm sorry, I'm getting a little fired up here. Because they don't have that conversation with their children because they don't need to. But because my kids are of color, I have to have those conversations with them. Because, again, as a father and as a parent, all I want is my children to come back home safe. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with the police officer and his, his you know, his, his line ways, whatever, you know, about, yeah, okay, say you weren't, you weren't going 45, you know, you were going 25, whatever. We'll fight that in court. But I just want my kids to come home safe. Whereas I don't believe our, our, our white counterparts have those conversations with their children. And Absolutely. That, that that bothers me a lot. Well, and, and to your guys' point, right? Like And your main initiative is to raise the floor. That's the only thing we can do is raise the minimum. Raise the floor and, and change paradigms the best you can. Um, and start changing people's thought processes and at least get them thinking. If you can get them thinking and then we can continue that conversation. I think you'll be able to flip them and then definitely trickle down to the younger generation as well. That's you make a great point is that the way to get to the older generation is through their kids. And I honestly, Vinny, have never even thought of that. And it's it's true. I think even my younger brother being 21, he's changed the mindset of my parents a little bit because he's been living home since March. He's been going to these protests. He's been making my mom go with him. He's been, you know, and, and my parents are both of color as well, but like they have always been the type to, I wouldn't say shy away from the conversation, but they're like, I got so much going on that like, I can't necessarily have this conversation right now. Right. And it's like, well, you don't really have any time to other time besides right now. And we have to have that combo right now. And my, even like within my own family, my brother's been able to bring that, bring that forefront. So I can only imagine how it's continued to help. And I'm sure there's a lot of parents that argue with their parent or that argue with their kids about these this situation that's going on right now. And the one thing that I see on TikTok and Instagram and Twitter is that these kids are arguing with their parents and they're like, no, mom, you're wrong. No, dad, you're wrong. And it's while it may not be easy right now, it will get easier as time goes on because then they will, we will start being able to flip their mindset to understanding that this is not political. This is about humanity. And we're talking about people's lives. We're not talking about left right or who the president is or whatever it may be charles i want to i want to flip over to you on this one because i'm i'm curious to hear your thoughts on especially being 
a Division One college athlete that played on uh, at Stetson and at Delaware State. Like, what do you think we could do to help our other athletes understand really how to continue to use their platform to elevate this? So from <clears throat> so from my experience, uh, my senior year, our offensive line room was like a crazy diverse offensive line. Room. We had white guys, black guys, Canadian, poly, Jewish, like whole bunch of different guys. And we always hung out away from football. So as we hung out, we got to talk about the different things that were going on in each other's lives, the situations people were going through back home. And you start to break down the different stereotypes and different thought processes that you have against people. And you get to see people for who they are. It's like them as an individual. And you learn about people's culture. And you take that and you share that with the people that you know. You share that with the people around you. And so it, it you it's like it's like an investment. You invest into the you mostly invest into the people around you. And so as you do that and become brothers, you protect that investment. You try to you try to share what other people struggle because they're they're your brothers too. So you try to share what they're going through. And like Coach said, you start at the at the local level. I think that's the most important part because those are the people that you interact with every day. Those are the people that you see. And those are the people that will have the most immediate effect of change in your life. So you just have those conversations and you just you just talk about it because some people are some people are ignorant to the plights of other people. And it's not their fault. It's just exposure. And so as you get to talk with people and you, you break down those stereotypes, that's the that's the key. Just starting those conversations and encouraging those conversations amongst teams and amongst players and amongst position groups or whatever the case may be just start those conversations. And, and once you start those conversations, that'll go a long way. Yeah. And one thing you brought up that it kind of, it brings an example to my mind. And I don't know if you guys remember, remember this, but I think it was like 2016, 2017, but the LSU players, when they came out of the locker room, they actually started doing the Haka, which is a Samoan um, warrior dance. And one of our teammates, Blake Platzmeyer, actually, when he went to San Mateo, uh, the College of San Mateo, a couple of his uh, teammates were Samoan and they taught their entire team the the haka. And it's a sense of pride for them because it shows it's a dance that they do before uh, their warriors would go into war. And, you know, looking at the, the game of football, a lot of us think of it as war. Right. Especially when we're getting ready to prepare for battle right before the game. And people from the outside would see these players doing it and they'd be like, oh, that's such a cool little like Indian dance, not knowing exactly what it was. And then I remember a post going viral on Twitter from the guy, and I, I don't remember his name, so you guys got to, you know, forgive me for that one. But he was like, guys, like, this isn't just an Indian warrior dance. Like, this is like a dance that comes from my country that warriors do as they're preparing for battle. And my brothers have embodied my culture and embodied who I am because I used to do that by myself. And now they're all doing it with me because they think that they, it's not that they think they're embodying my culture as we prepare to go to battle together, right? And it became a sense of pride for that entire team. Now that team never won a national championship. That team didn't win an SEC championship. But my point being was that it was able to bring a bond to together for guys and guys were able to go, I'm not from Samoa, but shoot, I'm gonna learn how to do this haka dance, right? Because that is my brother. I am going into battle with him. And it's not its not a sense of like me and my pride and my ego of, of doing what my culture does, but it's a sense of pride for him. And because he cares about it and he's doing it, I care about him and I'm going to go do that. Right. Spence, I want to transition over to you and uh, hear your thoughts on this. 
Well, I think Vinny brought up a good point when he said, you know, this starts up with the children. This starts up with the kids. And I think one thing that, uh, you know, I'm pretty proud to say is that our generation and even, you know, you know, Generation Z beyond the millennials, they're willing to have these conversations and they're willing to learn what they don't know already. Um, and I think when you when you come together through sports and it's like I was telling you guys before we started the call here today, organically on the way home from golf now, uh, me and two of my buddies are having the conversation about social justice in the car and it comes up organically. It's taking an interest in the people that you guys know in common, it's taking an interest in, you know, um, people that you guys have, have met together. And I think it goes to show that just having the conversation can go a long way, but it's a good starting point. Right. And, and, and where do we start from that? We're not going to change the entire country overnight, but we could start it in the communities and we could start it in your friend groups. You could start it in, you know, just having a conversation with your buddy and taking the time to learn more about the things that you don't know. And that's been so key for me in the last several months is I is realizing I may not know everything I, I, I think I do when it comes to this topic. Um, you know, I may think that, you know, well, I'm not a racist, but am I, am I being, am I being anti-racist? Am I doing the things and learning the things that I don't know so that I can impact the people that I've met and impact the people I've met through sports? Because I think I speak, you know, for all of us here, you know, we all have sports in common. We all came here because we, we knew Chase and uh, we played sports together at some degree um, and, and, and realizing that it begins there and it starts as a brotherhood but it turns into taking an interest in the people that you love and the people that you've gone to war with. And I think that is my big takeaway from sports is that it's brought me around people that I would never have had the opportunity to spend time with coming to Stetson. We played with people from all around the country, northerners, people from California, um, you know, people from all, all everywhere, all walks of life are coming together and bringing different experiences in. Um, and, and you get to take time to, to spend you know, quality moments and have these conversations with, with the people that are now your friends. And you wonder, well, what struggles do you face on a daily basis that I don't see? And I've gotten a chance to see and learn about those different struggles that other people who are not like me will face. Um, and I think that is a huge part in my, in my mind going forward is, okay, this is what my life is like, you know, but what about my friends? What do they experience? And, and, and it begins in the locker room. And I think the next step is, what do we do after just having these conversations? Are we talking about action items in our conversations? Are we talking about, you know, what we could do going forward? And I can speak for myself that when the rally started, I went to a small one here in Deland and it, and it came about from two teammates that are not the same color of me asking me to go with them. And I obviously was glad to go and, and it was extremely powerful. It was, it was a small gathering given the size of the town, but it was powerful to see, uh, especially in a city like here in Deland where, Something may be to change because it's a small town and it's a small town of living. An area like this is willing to put together an extremely peaceful protest, and I think it, it, it and it, it really spoke volumes about the people that I'm spending time with and, and comes together. Where did I meet those people? I met them through sport. Absolutely, and and Vinny, I I don't know if you're. I think you were at Milton when uh, Coach Bennett was there, but I'm going to bring up a quote that he used to say to me all the time is. You know, I, I grew up a basketball guy. I wasn't really a football player. Um, started playing football in middle school just because I was athletic. And then when I got to high school is when it became serious. And I was like, oh, I could actually possibly have a future in this. And I remember getting ready for my first start ever my sophomore year and Coach Bennett coming up to me and he was like, how are you feeling? And I was like, Coach, I've never 
been this nervous before in my life. I want to throw up. I am so scared. These guys are 20 times bigger than me. Like the receiver that I'm guarding is 6'4". He runs faster than me. I don't know if I'm going to be able to guard him. And he goes, well, if you ain't nervous, then that means you ain't going to compete. He was like, because nerves bring out the best in you. And one thing that I've always tried to do is bring the lessons that I've learned through athletics and, and kind of tie them through in my life. And I bring that up because these uncomfortable conversations are uncomfortable, right? Like you're sitting in a chair, you have no ego, you have no pride, and you're sitting there and you're just like, damn, I didn't know that. Damn, I didn't know that. Damn, wow, that sucks, right? But my point being is that right before these conversations typically happen, there's a feeling of angst and nervousness that comes in through your stomach. And all of a sudden you have those butterflies and you're like, oh, it'd just be a lot easier if I just didn't say anything. And I kind of maybe made up an excuse, went home, drank a beer and just chilled. Or instead just started playing some video games. Or instead of asking this question, I could do a million other things. But it's taking that nervousness and then understanding that you're only going to get better and grow from this. And because of that, you're going to become a much better person. You're going to become a more well-rounded human being. And you're also going to become a part of the solution rather than being a part of the problem, right? And Charles, I have a, a last question for you. And I, I do want to get yours, uh, your opinion on this, both Spence and Vinny, is Charles, you played at HBCU after you left Stetson. And I know you just said that your offensive line room was very diverse in terms of you guys had Jewish and white and black and Polynesian and like people from all over the world, but the school is majority black, right? And that means that your coaches not only had to deal with the, the dynamics of your team, but the dynamics of the school. And my question for you is what was that experience like compared to a school like Stetson where it's majority white? And then what would your advice be for coaches who have maybe never been in a situation like that and could maybe you could say be a little bit better in terms of just like bringing racial equality um, kind of into play in terms of things like that sort. Um, so just the difference, it, like at Stetson, like you had your team and you majority, you like you pretty much only hung out with like guys on the team, maybe like a few frat guys, but like majority guys on the team or at least for me. And so at Delaware State, it was more like people, it was more people that look like me. So it was like, I wasn't like, it, you go from like being like the only black guy in your class to being like one of like three, four, it's like, a, it's way more people. And then especially like in like your, like your general ed classes, and you're like, it's everybody in there is black. So it's like, if you feel more like more comfortable, more at home and our coach, like our coach, like our coaching staff, it was like the complete opposite. Like our head coach was black and like we had like maybe had like one or two position coaches that were white. And they were like, <clears throat> they encouraged us to be ourselves, like be ourselves, but like still make sure that we were a part of the team. But it was most of the time it was never like an issue of like expressing yourself personally. And that was like that was good. And like on campus, you just got to be yourself. And, like, you didn't have to, like, act a certain way at a certain time. You just got to be you. And I feel like that's very important. And just, like, giving your players a space to be you. So my I have, like, two-part advice for coaches. So the first one would be to, like, if you're coaching, like, black players or players that are, like, different from you, try to, like, really immerse yourself in their culture, like, learn about them, learn about the struggles that they're going through. But also – like when it comes to like recruiting, like maybe
But first, it's about my brothers and sisters. I've heard from a lot of white people that a lot of you guys are lost and looking for some way to help. Just help me help you guys is almost exactly how it feels. And the one thing that I'll tell you guys is we'll touch on education first. Educate yourself. There are books, there are podcasts, there are blogs out there where you can read and hear firsthand accounts of being black in the United States. Shoot, if you go on Instagram, you could look at at humans of NY, humans of New York. It is an Instagram page about humans living in New York and their stories. Go read those stories. And reach out to those people. Get to know them. Understand their story. I'll also post a list of all of these books, podcasts, and blogs out there for you guys within my uh, own Instagram story. So that way you can also see this. Another thing is talk to your black friends and all of your minority friends. Have very serious conversations about why they react to something in a certain way. There are so many stereotypes of black men and women. And you need to understand why your friends react the way they do to certain things. Yes, we have different backgrounds. Yes, we grew up differently. And if you listen to black comedy, what's interesting is that you could actually hear the differences between growing up black and white. The one thing that we don't do is we don't take those seriously because it's in a very light aspect in terms of the way that the message is delivered. But what I want you guys to do is listen and have those uncomfortable conversations. My roommate Thomas and I, he's white, I'm black. We have been talking almost every night for hours on end about the struggles between both of us that we've endeared in our life. I've known him since I was three years old, but he doesn't know 90% of the struggles that I went through daily. And in turn, I don't understand some of the struggles that he went through daily. And I'm not just calling out Thomas because Thomas knows me better than almost anybody else. But what I would say is that we've had some very uncomfortable conversations and they've allowed us to understand who we are as a person why we move the way that we move. And also it has a lot more respect. We have a lot more respect for each other because of it. Intentionality. You need to be intentional with your education. It's time that you take this time to read books, listen to podcasts and listen to your friends of color. If you don't actually set aside specific times to call your friends of color or listen to these books or read, or I'm sorry, read these books, you will put it off and you'll never do it. Don't let your procrastination be part of the problem. Let your intentionality be part of the solution. My other aspect of intentionality for white people is stand up for your friends, even when they aren't around. I know for a fact that when I walk with my friends who are white, I know they have my back through and through. If someone said something wrong, not only would I step up, but they'd be right there by my side, stepping up, if not ready to fight. But what if someone said something about another black man that was wrong in all ways? Would you stand up and say something? Say I wasn't there and somebody said something about me or about another black man. Would you then step, stand up and say something? What would you tell that person who is wrong and what would you, expl- and what would you explain to them and what they said and how it hurts you? And those how, who he and she is speaking about and how it hurts them. You need to be intentional. You need to show people that you're standing up for what's right. And you not only need to prove it to, the, to other people, but you need to prove it to yourself. Now, on to black people. My brothers, my sisters, it's been a wild ride for the last couple of weeks. It's been a wild ride for my entire life, our entire lives. But the one thing that we could do is we could stand up and we could help fight this fight. 
through education and, and intentionality. We need to help white people understand the struggle that we go through on a daily basis. So through education, we need to join forces with our white friends to help them in this education. We need to help them understand the struggle that we face daily, the stereotypes that affect our daily lives. Every little thing that you face, they might not understand what it's like, but what they can do is empathize with you. Don't be afraid to share your story. Guys, I, I, I am so nervous to share this with you guys, and I'm not even freaking lying, but the one thing that I could tell you is that I'm being as vulnerable as possible. And, and vulnerability comes real reality and genuineness and authenticness. And when you're not afraid to share your story, you're not afraid to show that you are in fact human and you have feelings. You're not just a reckless freaking animal. We are too human and we deserve to be treated as such. And through this, we could use the intentionality aspect of it as well. Be intentional when speaking with your white friends. Yes, it is a very tough thing to do. But when someone comes to you seeking education, like I said earlier, you need to be vulnerable. Don't front like all this shit doesn't hurt you. It does. It hurts all of us. We see it. But the one thing you could show your white friends is the amount of pain and hurt that you face daily by being honest with yourself and your emotions. And then next, we need to stick up for our brothers and sisters. Whatever environment you're in, you need to hold companies and people accountable for their actions. If you don't see any, any diversity in your workplace, don't only stand up and say, we need more diversity in here. I see no other black people. Instead, let them know that diversity is a huge problem to the company and that you will help stand up and make this place a more diverse company. Sure, it's a lot when you have to go above and beyond your job, but we need to only stop thinking about ourselves. Think about this. If you stand up and cause change, not only will it behoove you, but it will behoove your children and their children, and the next children. They won't have to go through the same hate and shit that you have had to feel. Isn't that the entire goal of life? Set, the, set up our families for success? That's the way that I was raised. I want to make it better for the next person because I know that change takes a, t takes a little bit of time. And if there's anything that I could do to make the next generation better, so that way we do reach equality and we reach it a lot faster than we ever thought we would get to, man... Wouldn't that be a sight to be seen? Next, on to police and government municipalities. Ooh, boy. Let's start with education. Education is going to be vital to our country getting better. Police and government municipalities need a great amount of change, but let's start here. You need to build relationships with the communities that you serve. You need to go into the communities that you serve, and you need to get to know the people in that community. My recommendation is to set up academies in these communities where citizens and officers can get to know each other in a communal setting. Instead of setting quotas to hand out tickets and gain dollars for your municipalities, set a quota for getting to know kids and adults in the communities that you serve. No, it's not easy. And y'all aren't, li aren't like liked by very... Y'all aren't liked by very many people right now. I think it's pretty damn obvious. But if you act like Sheriff Christopher Swanson of, Mis of Michigan, then you could quickly put down barriers in order to have a very simple conversation, a human-to-human -human interaction. It starts with relationship building, and that is on you. You need to be the ones reaching out. You need to be the ones reaching out to different communities and, and helping other people understand you as a human being. 
If you build the relationship with the communities that you serve, then you will be at the forefront of change. Go look up Christopher Swanson. What he did was commendable. And next, let's talk a little bit about intentionality. And I say a little bit, let's talk a lot about intentionality. You need to be intentional in the way you act. Everything you do is for a specific reason, whether it's for votes or to reach a quota or to just put people in jail because it makes you feel powerful. Well, the truth is you're seeing your power slip day by day. From Friday till today, you're seeing your power slip. Think about it. In the current moment, open your eyes. The power is going away and it's going into the hands of the people. In order for you to get better, you need to be intentional in getting to know the community you serve. Again, Sheriff Christopher Swanson is a great example of this. He took off his riot gear. He walked into a crowd of protesters and he said, I hear you. What do you need me to do? The crowd's response March with us. Boom. Guess what he did? He marched with them. Why? Because he is showing he is on the right side. He is not just saying it with words, but he's proving he means it through action. It's on you to show the community you serve them. Not only you're there to get them in trouble, but you want to keep the community safe. You're not there to get people in trouble and and just take them to jail wrongfully. At least that's what I hope you're not there for. You want to keep communities safe? Build a relationship with the community. You'd let your best friend's kid get off if they got in trouble. Why? Because you have a relationship with them. Now go build those relationships with the community. My last group to touch upon is corporations. This is a fight that I've been fighting every single day since I joined corporate America. I remember sitting down and having a conversation with one of my leaders and I asked him why there was not a lot of black people that worked with me in my environment. And his excuse for me was that we don't have a lot of black people in Seattle. I left pissed off, enraged, angry, and motivated as hell to help every single black person in Seattle prove that not only are there a good amount of us, but we have the ability to be smart and intelligent. We are smart and intelligent and we can prove to you that we bring diverse backgrounds to your company that are only going to help you grow. So I say that to tell you guys this. The first thing is educating yourself on diversity on what diversity can do for your organization. And yes, I'm talking to you corporations. I can't personally find the study right now, but the truth is more diverse organizations from top to bottom, not just all entry level black people end up growing and being the best companies in the world to work at and from a number standpoint. Why is this? When you have the diversity of thought and background, people don't fall into groupthink. They challenge each other, not because of hatred, but because of a reason deeper than that, wanting what's best for the business and for the people in the business. You need to educate yourself on the fact that the consumer base you serve doesn't reflect your organization. And you know what? All of these marketing campaigns are great to show that you care about blacks in America, but the way that I'm thinking about it, it's all hearsay until you put some damn action against it. Let's think about the one campaign that went viral, Nike. For once, don't just do it. Be a part of the change. Well, let me ask you this, Nike. What are you going to do to be a part of that change? Will you invest in communities and put up basketball courts to help the community become better and stay off the streets? Will you invest in communities and partner with municipalities to ensure the safety of people in their community? 
I mentioned earlier that police and municipalities need to build relationships with their communities. Are you going to be that bridge for both of them? By building a basketball court, partnering with a municipality to ensure unarmed police officers show up to the courts to play basketball and to not monitor the play, you, yes, you can be the turning point for change in this country. Actions speak louder than words. And now that you've said you care, show it. One thing that I always talk about, and I've been talking about this, is the intentionality. Companies and organizations put numbers against pretty much everything in that organization. It allows companies to understand if they are doing things right for the business. So why wouldn't you put an intentional, put intention in growing your diversity? Why wouldn't you put a number against your diversity growth totals? You put aggressive goals towards your working team and leaders to push them to be the best they can, growing your business at an exponential rate. It's time you be intentional about growing diversity in your organization. And no, this isn't just about hiring black people. Recruit and hire them. Grow and develop them. Give them a damn chance. Give us a damn chance. Sometimes all a person needs is an opportunity to show you how great they can be. You are hindering greatness when you don't take a chance on someone who deserves to be there, regardless of their race. Put numbers against your diversity goals. Ensure the panels for interviews are diverse and that your recruiting poll is diverse. Don't hire too quickly just because you need the role filled. Hire the right person for the position, and when you have a diverse pool, it diversifies your teams. Not only will you see your business grow, but you will see, but people will see that you are putting your money where your mouth is. So what's next? Chase, all this sounds great, but what the hell are we going to do about it? We're going to act. Like I said earlier, Obama stated in his statement that we need a checklist of things to do in order to see progress. Here's a couple of things that we can do immediately. And with consistency and constant progress, we will make strides. The fact that we are even talking about this right now is a great thing. It's a win in a time where we feel like we can't get a win. Police officers are being prosecuted and people aren't tolerating crime from police anymore. We still have a long ways to go and I recognize that. But the truth of the matter is that we are making at least a little bit of progress. We won't be able to solve the problem today, tomorrow, or a week from now. But if you keep this same energy, the same energy that you have on Instagram with the blackout, we will make strides in equality and pushing for doing what's right for all Americans, which is equality in all rights. Personally, y'all, I'm all in. I put everything else that I'm working on on the back burner. There's nothing more important to me than helping fix this problem and getting a solution. Leaders, I'm challenging you to step up. Corporations, as the true constituents of the United States, I'm challenging you to use your power to bring good to our people. Government municipalities and police officers, it's about damn time you stop looking for votes and start serving the communities that you serve. Guess what? If you actually serve your communities, why the hell would they vote you out? Exactly. There's no answer for that. Do what's right. The, we, the reason we even have a democratic government. To my brothers and sisters, both black and white, stay strong. Educate yourself and others. Stand up for one another. If we stand together in solidarity, nothing will be able to stop us. In solidarity, we stand. Let's do this. And my last note, if you're an All Lives Matter person, think about this. You know, I agree with you. All lives do matter. But the truth of the matter is that there are good, good cops, there are bad cops, just like black people. 
there are good people and there are bad people. But the truth is that the media only highlights the bad, which is why we as a people are deemed thugs, gangsters, and overall aggressive. So let's fix, fix the first problem in front of us. Blacks getting killed and imprisoned wrongfully. Then we could focus on the rest of the lives. I'm not downplaying anyone's life. But the fact is, we need black people to stop being killed in front of our eyes and behind closed doors. It needs to stop. And it doesn't need to stop tomorrow. It needs to stop today. It happens for no reason. And it's absolutely absurd. So say it with me. In solidarity, we stand. Thanks for tuning in. I love you. If you like the show, make sure to leave us a review. Go ahead and check us out on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Millennial Way. And check out our website at itsmillennialtalk.com where there's new blog posts and updates. We will see you next Winning Wednesday. Go grab those dubs. This is The Millennial Way, tailoring the next generation of leaders.